Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about peace. It's a big topic in libertarianism because we believe in nonviolence and non-aggression. And today we have a guest who is... I would say he's an expert on the, the on the theology of peace. Uh, Ted Grimsrud is Senior Professor of Peace Theology at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. He is the author of many books on the topic of peace, nonviolence, atonement, and eschatology. And he's here to talk to us today about pacifism. Ted, thanks for being with us. It's great to be with you, Doug, and appreciate the opportunity. You know, you and I were talking before we went on air about, you know, where libertarians are on issues of peace and nonviolence. And of course, I would say that at the very least, we should have an affinity for uh, the ethic of peace that is found in the scriptures, that is uh, found in the ethics of Christ. But when you bring up the word pacifism, there's a lot of animosity uh, or at the very least animated conversation uh, and reaction by people because it turns people off for some reason. I'm not really sure why, because, you know, at, at the very least, it should be something attractive. And so I think a lot of people don't give it a fair hearing. And in some ways, I honestly don't think people understand what it is. Now, of course, we can, there, there, you know, Brian Zahn says there are many different types of pacifism. You can be a Unitarian Universalist pacifist, and that might not have anything to do with uh, Christian pacifism, which would find its origins in the teachings of Christ. And so what I want to talk to you about today is some of the overlap in the libertarian worldview and why, and, and more getting them to understand the the, a defense of Christian pacifism. And I think you're probably the best yeah. person, to, one of the best people to talk to. So there are many types of pacifisms uh, out there. And obviously every single person who calls himself a pacifist and that, are, and that one would consider a pacifist might have a different take on any particular conversation. Uh, but what does it mean to you? And when you describe it and teach it, what are you talking about? Well, I think, like, first of all, I'd just say that uh, in the general sense of the term used I mean, used in a positive way by people who maybe would tend to affirm it, the general sense would be uh, opposition to war or unwillingness to participate in war or to support war. Uh, so, or also on other levels as well, uh, on a personal level, to not take up arms oneself, uh, to use violence against other people. Uh, and I, I would certainly say that is part of what I would mean by pacifism. I also, though, like to kind of talk about it in terms of, of Christian pacifism, in which the central kind of emphasis is, is a very positive emphasis, not simply don't do violence or don't go to war. And I, I would define pacifism in, in, in this sense as, uh, you know, with taking Jesus as the kind of center point of Christian uh, faith and of the Bible, that Jesus' message of love your neighbor as the kind of core message of what it means to know God, to, to gain eternal life. The, uh, uh, 
the story of the Good Samaritan would be a, a, a kind of, one of the central messages. And so then pacifism becomes uh, basically saying that there is uh, no commitment or no ideology uh, that matters more than the call to love the neighbor. So therefore, there is no way, there's nothing that trumps that call. That mm-hmm. call is uh, kind of the center of, of faith for the Christian pacifist. So it sounds like it's more than just what can't you do. It's more of a um, mind, I want to say mindset, but really it's more of a heart set, if you will, yeah. on how do we, how do we, how do we love others? How do we, how, what's our posture toward others, I guess it would be. Right. And, and I think what, to me, what pacifism kind of self-consciously affirming pacifism does is it just helps, helps one be clear about what uh, love involves and, and what it, what, what it doesn't involve, you know, that you can't love somebody and kill them mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. But, but I, I really believe, and, and we'll probably talk about this more in a little while, I suppose, but I really believe that uh, Jesus' message of peace is very much uh, linked with the kind of broad sense in the Old Testament of peace, uh, of shalom, of justice, of uh, what was called loving kindness. There are these kind of three concepts, uh, the, the Hebrew term shalom, the, the term mishpat for justice and chesed for loving kindness. That All of that is a very positive kind of vision of, of human life. And that that's really, pacifism is kind of based on that. So yeah, we're going to, in probably just a few minutes, we want to talk about the whole scriptural support. Uh, but what does it, when when people hear you talk about pacifism, are there common misunderstandings where you're like, no, 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 no I'm not saying that because that's not, that's a misunderstanding. I mean, what, where would that, where would that conversation oh, yeah. have? Yeah, that, that has happened a lot, I'm afraid. Uh, but it's, it's good. I mean, it, it, it's important to address those, but I, I would say one of the biggest ones is uh, just the, the similarity in the sound of the word passive or being passive and pacifism. Mm. And, and even I think some people think the word pacifism is pacifism, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, like it would even spell it that way. And I think uh, like one time in, in one of my classes, uh, we tried to, uh, to, 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 re, to, to have a different pronunciation and say pacifism because the Latin word for peace, uh, pace, you know, but that didn't really catch on. <laughs> uh, but I, but I think, yeah, I think that the to me the biggest uh, and, and and as you said uh, in your introduction that uh, there is a lot of it seems uh, antipathy towards the idea of pacifism, and I think that's part of it is uh, for for people who really care about the world and care about uh, you know healing and 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 uh, justice. Uh, to be passive is seen as a real big problem, you know, and, and I would agree with that. I just think that pacifism, uh, both in terms of the word itself and in terms of the ideas behind it, uh, is, 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 is actually very positive. It, it, it really basically means love of peace. And if you uh, understand peace then as, you know, in this broad kind of biblical sense of shalom, of wholeness for all people, then Pacifism is actually a call to uh, resist the things that uh, go against shalom. Uh, so pacifism actually is is a very 
kind of action-oriented and a very activist kind of uh, notion, I think, if it's properly understood. And again, going back to Jesus, it seems like that's definitely what Jesus was all about. I think the mental image many people might have is, you know, you have on the one hand, on the one side, you might have somebody taking up arms to stand up against injustice and fight the evildoers. And right. they're doing something active and you have some, you have symbolism for that, right? You have a, you have right, a right, gun, right. a sword or whatever. Right. And on the other hand, you have people who believe in peace and we'll call them, we'll call them pacifists. And what the image is is that they're standing by letting bad things happen because, oh, right. well, I can't touch that gun. Right. I can't bring, I can't touch that right. sword. And so right. there's like that mental image. Uh, but what you're saying is it's not that I can't touch that sword or gun or whatever weapon. It's a very different approach to what it looks like to battle evil. That's right. Uh, like what, one of my uh, favorite uh, writers, person who's influenced me a great deal is uh, uh, Walter Wink and uh, his kind of most famous book is called Engaging the Powers. And he begins the book by saying that uh, basically the task of a Christian, the task of a moral person really, is to resist evil, to to try to overcome evil. But the big question or the big issue is how do you overcome evil without adding to the evil? Mm. Uh, because so much of, of what has happened in, in, in human history, really, and certainly in recent human history, is uh, attempts to resist something that is seen as wrong, uh, but doing it in a way that only adds to the uh, adds to the violence, adds to the cycle of brokenness. And and so I would say pacifism is saying yes, we recognize and and we believe that our task as human beings, our task as followers of Jesus is to uh, resist evil. Uh, but we believe that the way to do that is to find ways that don't add to the evil by uh, heightening the cycle of violence. So let's jump into the biblical support and theological issues that, that are there. I mean, where, where do you start with that? Well, in, a, in, in terms of the, the positive, like I think there are kind of uh, – Two aspects, really, uh, in talking about the Bible, in my experience, you know, the first would be the uh, kind of positive uh, teaching or message in the Bible that supports pacifism. And then the second would be, well, what about the uh, places in the Bible that seem to point the other direction? You know, And, and just to start with the, the positive, I, uh, again, would say that the, the central point is uh, the life and teaching of Jesus. And this uh, uh, comes from a, a, among other things, I mean, the main thing, uh, it, it comes from a, a confession of Jesus as uh, kind of the revelation of God, Jesus as the kind of center point for Christian faith, and Jesus also as the center point in the biblical story, uh, uh, it, you know, as uh, understood or, or uh, you know, from a Christian perspective. Uh, and so Jesus basically uh, lived a life of uh, peace, a life of, of love, and uh, that involved for him, certainly it involved resisting uh, brokenness and wrongdoing and injustice. Uh, it's very important, I think, to, to recognize that Jesus uh, was the embodiment of the love of God in the world, and as such, that meant that the powers of uh, injustice, the, the the social powers of empire and kind of you could call religious institutionalism uh, didn't like that. And they 
fought against him. And that, uh, and, and so it's very important that he both took a stand, the stand he did and that he responded uh, the way he did, which was by continuing to practice love, even to the point of, uh, you know, being arrested and killed. And then, you know, on top of I mean, then kind of the next point would be that God vindicated Jesus, vindicated Jesus' way of life, vindicated Jesus' teaching uh, when God raised Jesus from the dead. And so uh, the resurrection, I think, in, in, in terms of Christian pacifism is very important, uh, not only in terms of, uh, you know, hope for eternal life and, and that sort of thing, but as just as a, a literal concrete kind of vindication of this particular way of life as the way of life uh, that God wants for the world. And so then Jesus is both the, the kind of the revelation of what God is like, and then he is also the model of what uh, human beings are to be like. What about the messages that point the other direction? I mean, we have the, I mean, we have the book of Revelation to start to kind of start at the end there. And then you have things, you have references even by Jesus about, you know, uh, go buy a sword or, you know, you often, you know, people will go to God uh, wipe, having Israel wipe out you know, all the, all the inhabitants of the promised land prior to taking it over. I mean, there's, there's plenty yeah. of, I mean, David was a warrior. There was just like a lot of things in there that's like, oh my goodness, there's, there's a lot more in there uh, that seems kind of not something we can overcome in terms of the the story. But obviously it's not like you don't know about those verses. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. And, and I mean, I guess I would say, you know, first of all, that uh, I don't know very many people. I don't know if I know anybody who was convinced to be a pacifist or convinced not to be a pacifist based on uh, the Old Testament. I think that I think that that comes second. I mean, I think I think that uh, that the, the again, I would say that the basic issue is what do we do with Jesus and, and Jesus message? And if that is central, then, you know, we figure out some way to deal with the Old Testament stuff. If it's not central, then the Old Testament stuff is a way to kind of justify or, or to back up that decision, not to make mm. Jesus central. But I, but I do think that it, it, it's, and, and I, I, I definitely want to get to revelation too, because I, I thought a lot about that, but just in terms of, of this, this, this question in relation to the old Testament, that uh, I think it's, it's very important uh, to recognize that Jesus affirms the old Testament as scripture and understands himself to be uh, uh in, in line with the Old Testament. And, and then I would say, uh, as I said a minute ago, that Jesus, you know, in my terms, he, uh, affirms pacifism. And so the fact that Jesus does both of those, to me, is a big clue that this isn't a big problem. Uh, that, that, and, that, and I think a key part then of understanding it not as a big problem is to recognize and appreciate just the uh, really powerful emphasis in the Old Testament on peace. And certainly there is violence in the Old Testament. There's no question about that. But there's also a lot of peace. And I think the, the, uh, just on its own terms, there are uh, Jews. There, uh, one of my favorite uh, Jewish uh, uh, writers is uh, 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 Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, and he wrote uh, this two-volume book called The Prophets that's basically an affirmation of pacifism based on the Old Testament. Uh, so, so I think that, that there is this positive uh, message of peace. And then in terms of dealing with the violence, I think uh, the way I do it mainly is to say that uh, the Old Testament uh, is part of, it tells us a big story and that we should read the 
different pieces within that story in light of the outcome of the story, uh, which is, uh, again, the, the uh, life and teaching of Jesus, who himself said the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, uh, would be summarized in the call to love your neighbor. Uh, and then, you know, so then you look at those particular aspects of the, the story that uh, are, seem, you know, are intention and just try to say, okay, what, do the, what does this contribute to the story? How do we understand this in relation to the rest of the story? Uh, I'll just say one thing about uh, the, the, the story of the conquest, the book of Joshua, uh, which to me is the biggest difficult passage, you know. Uh, and I think, I think there, there, there's no, I, I've read a ton of things by a bunch of different people. I've done work on it myself, and I think there's no just simple, easy answer that is going to satisfy everybody. But, but to me, one of the important thoughts is that the story, of, and, and this actually could hook into libertarian uh, thought a little bit, maybe. But the the story of the of the conquest is the story of the people entering into this promised land and then becoming a territorial kingdom, if you will, a nation state. And that, uh, and then over the next generations, uh, ending with the King Josiah, that turned out to not work. And that basically the idea of, of the kingdom of God, of God's, uh, work through God's people being centered in a nation state ended at that point. And, and then I think, uh, the, the message of Jesus and his notion of the kingdom of God kind of reemphasized that, that point. And so, and so the story of, Entering the land in the conquest is the beginning of a story that ends up being uh, an abandoned strategy. And again, that doesn't take care of all the issues with, with the violence, but I think it puts it in context a little bit. I, I don't think I've ever heard it, uh, that aspect of it emphasized. And it, it, that's sort of us taking a you know step back and viewing the whole narrative as opposed to like jumping into yeah. some of the direct text. I really like that. You, you right. happen to have written a very lengthy summary slash response to uh, Greg Boyd's work on this oh, topic. Yeah. And Greg's been yeah. on this podcast right, right as his book was coming out, Crucifixion oh. of the Warrior God. And oh. it's probably probably one of the most recent really massive works on the subject. I'm not aware of any since then that have been like pretty massive like that. So do you have well, I a, any, I don't think there's any that's been as massive as that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it's quite the work and it, and it covers a lot of things that is, aren't, aren't necessarily directly about, about the, the conquest and the, right, the, right, the those right. texts of terror, so to speak. But it, you, you learn a lot, even if you don't agree with them, you learn a lot about biblical interpretation, but Absolutely. Uh, what's your, What's your summary take? I mean, we could talk a couple hours on this. On, on yeah, Hebrew. right. I, I mean, I, I really appreciate uh, Greg's work on that. Uh, I, I was very excited when I learned that he was writing it and read, read it avidly uh, and kind of just responded as I went along because it was so thought provoking for me. Um, I think that the, the, the part that I really like. Uh, which is to me the most important part is his emphasis on uh, God being a God of peace, and that uh, that the the you know the, the pictures in the Bible that uh, show God as being a God of, of violence uh, are not compatible with the God that we know through Jesus. Now, one of the problems I have with Greg's book is that I. I don't really agree that much with his way of then dealing with the Old Testament. 
violence. And I, I just wish that he had emphasized a lot more the message of peace within the Old Testament itself. Mm. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, his approach, his, his kind of strategy is, is kind of a, uh, uh, I don't know, I guess you could call it a, a Christological mm-hmm. strategy where it's, it's more kind of his doctrine of Christ that kind of becomes de- decisive, uh, not uh, the kind of the, the, the narrative of the Bible as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I think he calls it the cruciform. It's not yeah. just Christocentric, but it's crucicentric. That's, well, no, that's crucif- exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and I have problems with that, too. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't really <laughs> quite understand the cross in the same way that he does. I, I think, yeah, he makes the cross. I mean, I think the cross is crucial, so to speak, uh, to, uh, to, to understanding Jesus and the story of Jesus and, and understanding Jesus message of peace. But I think, I think of it more uh, crucial in terms of Jesus conflict with the powers, the, 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 the political powers, the religious powers that led to their executing him. Uh, then, a more kind of cosmic uh, transaction, you know, which I'm still not, I still don't quite understand Greg's explanation of that, but, uh, yeah, okay. but I think he does kind of kick it up in the, in the sky a little bit. You should, you should have a conversation with him. <laughs> he, well, you know, I, I, I would love to. And uh, I had hoped that, I mean, it, it seemed at one point that there might be a way and uh, I think I think it still would be possible. I'm sure if if there was some way to connect with him. But uh, but yeah, I and, and you know he's he's continued to be very productive and continued mm-hmm. to develop things. Yeah, yeah. So we have the Old Testament conquest narratives. We have uh, certain things in the New Testament that may not be so obvious about you know nonviolence. A few things from Jesus, um, but then the big one is Revelation. You know, you look at the Book of Revelation, and it's there's a lot of blood there. Right. Um, and so what's going on? And that might actually be. I think that was probably my last. You know, if I were because I'm pretty close to where you are, if not there, yeah. but this was probably my last stand, if you will, on like, yeah, but yeah. I just don't understand Revelation in any other way. Yeah, well, I that, that I had a experience or a, a, a key moment in my uh, development also was related to Revelation. I uh, had be, kind of become a pacifist. This was uh, I, I I turned. I was draft age the year the draft ended in 1973. Vietnam War was going on. I was a Christian, but uh, I wasn't being taught anything. about. I wasn't a Mennonite at that point. I wasn't being taught anything about pacifism or, or being a conscientious objector. And then it turned out I didn't have to go because the draft ended, but I was still thinking about it. And I had this kind of conversion to be a pacifist. And right away, or not right away, but fairly soon, I was part of a, a, a kind of a debate with people, a kind of a formal debate in our church about pacifism. And, and the, one of the people arguing against pacifism talked about Revelation. And I realized I'd never paid attention to Revelation. And uh, I decided I really needed to figure this out. And so I started to do a lot of reading. And actually, my, my first book uh, uh, came out in 1987. It's called Triumph of the Lamb, which is a commentary on Revelation. And, uh, and that book is kind of an articulation of, of my understanding that Revelation is actually very much a book of peace. And, the, and, and you know, it would take a while to kind of explain all of that, but just to say very briefly that the, the key 
uh, motif in Revelation, or the key figure in Revelation, is the lamb. And the lamb is victorious due to the lamb's uh, self-giving love, or the lamb's sacrifice, i.e. the cross. And that that becomes the, that, that is actually the method of God's victory in the book of Revelation, is the uh, the, the, the self-sacrifice of Jesus, not any future uh, violence that God would do. And a, a key vision in chapter 19, Revelation, where Jesus comes forth riding a white horse uh, as if to go to battle, and uh, he has a sword, but the sword is coming out of his mouth. That is, it's his word, it's his testimony. And the blood, and, and he is wrapped in a, in a white robe with blood on it his blood already shed. And then there's no war. He just captures uh, the powers, the, 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 the beast and the false prophet and throws them in the lake of fire. And the, I mean, this came later in my, in my continuing uh, kind of studying revelation is I, I actually did a uh, kind of a word study of the use of the word blood in revelation. And with one possible exception, every time the word blood is used in revelation, it's, used of Jesus or his followers. That is, blood in the book of Revelation is never the blood of other human beings. It's never the blood of God's enemies, with one possible exception. And this is, uh, uh, I think, a, a, a passage, I mean, it's, and it's an a, a, a important passage in chapter 14, uh, verses, uh, I believe it's 18, 19 and 20, where it talks about the blood that rose up to the bridle of the horses. Uh, but the blood... It's never, it's never identified uh, whose blood it is. And I actually, and this isn't a common interpretation, but uh, my hypothesis is that it's the, that also is the blood of the followers of Jesus. And that it links back to the vision in chapter 7, where we are told of this multitude uh, beyond counting uh, who are worshiping the lamb and washing their blood, their, their robes white, uh, uh, which is an, an allusion to, to uh, the blood. And then in, in chapter 12, uh, the, the, we're told that the victory of the uh, followers of Jesus is, is due to their, their own blood and the testimony of Jesus. So Revelation, I think, then actually ends up being a very creative and uh, uh, symbolic uh, affirmation of uh, the gospel and and of, of of the way of peace. So it's in in Revelation we we see Jesus life giving sacrifice as also an example of peace, not because of the cross. I mean, we can read yes. it through, the, through that lens. That's right, and and as is true in the Gospels, but unfortunately hasn't been true in a lot of Christian theology. Uh, there's an emphasis in Revelation that this cross of Jesus is a model for his followers. You know that that. It's not just that he died so we don't have to. It's that his way of life that led to his execution is the way of life that we should follow. This is the victory that he won and is the victory that we share in as we follow that path. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. 
Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. So there are some people who would call themselves pacifists, and yet they reserve vengeance and the the violent ways of accomplishing justice on a cosmic level to God, because God's perfect and God does not, you know, is that kind of a, God is above us. And therefore we are, you know, we're all sinners and on the same plane. And therefore, because, you know, Ted, you and I were sinners. So Ted, if you were, you and I, you know, against each other, I don't have the right to retaliate against you or use violence against you because, you know, I'm a sinner just like you are. So who am I to like, we're on the same plane in terms of like vengeance and justice, those sort of ways of conceiving of why violence ought to be necessary uh, at all uh, that we have to reserve that for God. And in fact, I think as Romans, if vengeance is mine, says the Lord, like we leave the, we leave that to him. I mean, that's, that's actually how I grew up believing we weren't like pacifists, but the whole, all the anger and passion and, and the, the sort of feelings of aggression and violence we may have toward other people that we, you know, of course we don't carry those out. That, that would be sin. Uh, we reserve yeah. God. God is the one who's going to make things just. And no matter where one stands on what, what it looks like in the end for God to declare the world, right. And, you know, even if you believe uh, all the way from like dispensational pre tribulational stuff to amillennial postmillennial, like anywhere on that spectrum, one could make the argument that like as humans, we should be this way because it's God who gets to decide uh, yeah. the, that there's a violent way to, to deal with this in the, in, in a just way. I'm right. not quite convinced of that personally. Uh, and obviously based on what you're saying, you're like, Nope, this is what God is like as well. But there right. is, there's also like that side. Uh, whereas it's like, oh, well, yeah. we know what we're supposed to do and we're just going to leave it up to God to do what the right thing is. That that's a that's a very uh, common and and, and uh, uh, you know strongly held position among some Christian pacifists. Uh, uh, certainly, you know it, it's a lot of Christians, most Christians, you know, who aren't pacifists would believe something like that as well. Uh, even though they would say there is room for uh, us to use violence as well as, as God's uh, agents of justice in the world. But, but there are, yeah, there are definitely, uh, this, this is a debate among uh, Mennonite theologians. It's been quite heated at times because there are, are those who would argue that, uh, uh, one Mennonite theologian uh, wrote an essay, God is not a pacifist. Uh, you know, and, and he was, our, he is a pacifist or he was, he's no longer living, uh, but he believed that God wasn't, you know, and the, the, one of the terms that they would use is as God's prerogative to do violence even though it's never our prerogative. And, and then even to say it is because God does violence that we uh, kind of are free not to do violence. And uh, I think there is some biblical support for that, although I don't think it's nearly as, uh, as clear as some would say. But I think, I, I guess to me, you know, again, it, it goes back to Jesus. And it's not like uh, there aren't elements, I mean, there aren't, things that Jesus alludes to or, or speaks of, or, or at least is recorded as doing, uh, most of them happen to be in, in just one gospel, the gospel of Matthew, 
that that warn of, uh, of 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 hellfire and brimstone and, and and that sort of thing. But but basically, I think it's clear that Jesus taught that uh, God is merciful. That, that we are called. I mean, right in you know the heart of uh, his teaching about peace in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says, uh, you should love your enemies, be merciful as God is merciful uh, in Luke's version, be perfect as God is perfect in, in uh, Matthew's version. And I think, again, if, if we understand Jesus as revelation of God, uh, there, there, there seems to be no violence in Jesus, you know. And I, I think when we, when we look at uh, other biblical, I mean, the Bible as a whole, again, this would be back to that kind of big story idea, you know, that. There are definitely places where God uh, is uh, is violent or and advocates violence, but but I think the bigger picture and, and the direction the story goes ultimately is that God is a God of peace. Uh, but I also think, to me, practically, the idea that God uh, is going to use violence is problematic both on the level of, I mean, I do think that we tend to imitate the God we believe in, you know, what, you know, even if we have this kind of sophisticated notion that, uh, that, you know, this is something where God is different than we are. I, I don't think in practice that necessarily is going to work that way, that we tend to just, if, if we worship God and believe God is a certain way, that's what we tend to tend towards ourselves. Uh, but also just the idea, and I think, again, this relates to the teaching and life of Jesus, that does God need to do violence in order to have God's will done. And I just, you know, and, and, and it, it, it just doesn't, that just doesn't fit with my understanding of God and the idea that God's power is the power of healing, the power of love. Uh, and I think it helps now, uh, actually, in the 20th century uh, and, and down to the present, that, that we have a, uh, a kind of an understanding of uh, nonviolent resistance or, you know, the, the Gandhi and Martin Luther King, it, it seems like it's easier now to imagine how uh, there can be resistance to evil that is effective, that does not require violence. You know, that it actually was the next question I had written down was like, why would God need to use violence anyway? Right, <laughs> so exactly. I'm glad you, you addressed my question before I, before I came to it. So I, I think a common so I think there's a lot of overlap between the way libertarian Christians ought to believe about what we are to do as individuals. And, you know, we, we, we probably don't have time to talk about the whole like national defense, all of that kind of stuff. But I mean, right. it's pretty safe right. to say that most libertarians uh, and especially Christian libertarians are against the military industrial complex. We're against the interactions of the United States government overseas in almost any aspect at this point. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of ca- there's a case to be made for none of the wars that America has been involved in were considered just wars or even worthwhile on any you know national level. You've even written right. uh, you wrote a book about World War II and that right. being the case. Um, so there's a lot of overlap on that end, but. When it comes down to whether or not I should yeah. own a gun uh, that's not for hunting, but for self-defense in that sort of last resort kind of way, right? Uh, that's that's where I think many in our audience might say, Ted, but what happens if, and of course, you've never heard this before, but what happens if somebody breaks into your property and is about to shoot your daughter and you only have the opportunity to shoot them to stop it? Like, that's your only option. Yeah. I'm sure you've never heard some sort of scenario like that. So I want to well, put you on the spot and corner you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a, a kind of flippant response is I, 
I don't have a gun, you know, so that's not an option either. And well, that's irresponsible, isn't it? Well, because that is in theory that could that's the, that's that's what I've been told. It's irresponsible yeah. to not provide a last resort option for yourself in in that case. Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to kind of take this a little different direction, but first, sure. just to, I'll, I'll I'll just say that I think. You know, I think and this works on all levels that uh, having, you know, having a gun actually reduces your ability to be creative. And that uh, if you don't have a gun, then you're going to be a lot more open to other options. And to actually shoot and kill somebody is a terrible thing for anybody to do. And if it's not terrible, then that's terrible. You know, you know what yeah. I mean? Well, you're, uh, if I can understand what you're saying, is like even if it's in theory a necessity to hurt somebody, it's we should grieve that it had to happen. Well, like yeah. If, although if, if I have to, if I, if I believe, if I'm the kind of person who believes that, well, yeah, it's my right as a last resort. I shouldn't really want to use that. Like I well, shouldn't be. Yeah, I, I'm saying more than that, though. I'm saying that if you are, uh, I mean, that most people would be greatly traumatized in an extremely profound way if they killed somebody else that that's one of the big things in the, the military learned is uh, that yeah okay soldiers don't want to kill people and they have to train them to kill to, to be willing to kill on an emotional level but then there's all kinds of damage you know the mm-hmm. uh uh perpetrator induced traumatic stress dramatic you know trump traumatic stress is a, a term that i've learned but but also i mean Another thought is also the the likelihood, apparently, is that if you had a gun, you're more at risk and your loved ones are more at risk than if you don't have a gun. Because, you know, you uh, are likely, you know, you aren't likely to be successful. Uh, so it just heightens the stakes a great deal when you introduce a gun into, this, into the thing. But the thought that the, the direction I would like to take this more, though, is just to say that I think self-defense, and, and it sounds like this maybe is kind of a common view among uh, at least some libertarians, you know, that self-defense is, is not at all the same thing as war. And the, the way the self-defense uh, argument has been mainly used in my presence is as a really a, a means of arguing in favor of war. And it, it just seems like those are two totally different things. And I think a, you know, that when we get in a, a difficult situation, we can't say for sure what's what we're going to do or what's going to happen. And and I'm I'm not going to be disrespectful or, or condemning of somebody who does violence in a in a really stressful situation because I think you, you just don't know. But this is the big but. Uh, I think so much does depend on what we prepare ourselves for. And uh, I think there are, you know, if, if one is, feels that one is at risk in a risky, lives in a risky neighborhood or, or whatever, that uh, there are, are ways to prepare to be safe or safer uh, ahead of time. And one way is to have a gun, but there are other ways too. And if, if you, you know, but again, if you want to be a person who uh, is nonviolent, then you will try to find ways to uh, do self-defense that don't require uh, killing people. Uh, but if you don't, I mean, if that's not a high value, then this argument isn't going to be very persuasive anyhow. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if that's really not where you're going to go, then <laughs> it's like a why persuade in that direction. I mean, I've often yeah. I, I've written about this in the past uh, on, an, on an article a few years ago about using nonviolence. And my biggest concern about Christians who have who are in I guess I would call it in favor of using a gun as a last resort to in terms of protection. And if that is something that you relish, and if that's the only thing that you've thought about in terms of protection, then I don't quite think you, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just think there's a lot, like, there's a lot more steps uh, to take. I right, mean, exactly. especially right. if you're in an area that, that is uh, conducive to violence. I mean, there are examples after examples of people who have chosen to live certain ways and they're, and they're safe. Um, and there's also, there's just something spiritually damaging, I think about not giving due diligence to what are the first 20 things you're going to do before you pull a gun. Um, and, and maybe, and, and I, I personally believe that, you know, I think it is our prerogative as people who need to defend those who are helpless, um, to stop it in its tracks. And so, you know, I don't, I don't really like the phrase, uh, I think it was the NRA leader a few years ago, you know, the only way to stop a mass shooting is a good guy with a, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And I think, okay, well, yeah, in that final moment, sure. But there are so many things leading up to the situation happening that could, in theory and in practice, be mitigated. And on a personal level, when you do have a lot of control over your property uh, and the way in which you think about, you know, uh, what happens if there's an intruder and those kind of situations, you know, there are, there are a lot of things you can do before you get to that last resort and be the good quote unquote, good guy with a gun. Um, yeah, but although, that, that I think and it, my point is that it, it gives, it unwittingly excuses people to just not think about the problem and say, Oh, well I need to have a gun in case there's a bad guy near me. I think that's a really good point, but I would add that I don't, I, I really think the last resort idea is a myth. I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are occasions where something, you know, someone would use a gun and it truly was a last resort. But I, I you know, I, I, I think if we have a gun, why would you wait till the last resort? You know, th- th- then you're going to be in a disadvantage. It seems like, like, like what having a gun would do uh, is it would, uh, it would make you way more likely to act uh, before you're actually in the last resort. I see. Uh, yeah, I have to think about that because I think the idea of last resort is more of a, in my mind, maybe it's not for other people. It's more like, okay, well, of course we want to have safe restaurants and safe uh, schools and safe this or that. But like, but what happens if something intrudes? Like we have to be ready for, a, it's like the yeah. last contingency as opposed to resort maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, well, I mean, that actually opens up another whole issue that uh, we don't really, I'm sure don't have time to talk about, but just that, <laughs> that, you know, is it my job as a Christian to figure out how the state or the wider community does stuff like that? You know, I mean, so, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, I, I, I don't think, or I mean, it wouldn't have to be as a Christian, it could be as a pacifist, or it could be as uh, some other kind of identity that, just as a moral person, is it my job as a moral person to tell the immoral state how to deal with violence? I mean, I, I have ideas and I would like to contribute to the conversation, but I also am willing to say, well, these are some, th- I mean, th- th- there are so many decisions that have been made 
that are against what I believe in by the time we get to some of these situations, like thinking especially of, uh, of like the police and the training, police training and, and, uh, and the, the centrality of, of guns and violence and, and how police deal with things. Uh, there's a certain sense in which I don't feel responsible for telling the police what to do. Wow, man, this is like, we could go another double length of the episode and I think we're right. <laughs> unable to do that. So here's, here's, here's the next best alternative. Ted, where can people read more about your thoughts on this? Um, is there a website that they can visit? Uh, because inevitably, you know, I, we make no promises here in this podcast that after one episode on a very contentious topic, you'll be satisfied. So <laughs> dear listener, you're going to have to keep doing more research. And we have had other episodes on this topic, uh, some of which are in more debating context and others of which are, you know, a little bit more in favor of the conversation like, like this one. Uh, so Ted, where, where can our listeners go for more information? Okay. I, I have uh, two, two websites. Uh, one is called thinking pacifism, one word. .net, and that is uh, uh, my blog. So I have a lot over the last 10 years, I've written a lot of kind of short essays, uh, broadly related to pacifism, although not only related to pacifism. And there are topic headings at the top of the homepage, and there's one for pacifism. And we didn't talk about this at all, but uh, I, I'm interested in anarchism. And I have a, uh, I, I've written some stuff about anarchism. Uh, that is also on that blog. And then the other site is called peacetheology.net. And that's where I have uh, kind of larger writings, older writings, essays, even books uh, on these general topics. Excellent. Well, Ted, thank you for being part of the conversation and uh, helping us to think more clearly about what pacifism as a Christian is and isn't, and some of your thoughts on a common pushback. I really appreciate uh, having you on today. Well, thanks, Doug. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.